And please do have a seat. Uh, right, we are going to have three weeks thinking about this um, whole topic of gender. Um, the plan is that today we're going to think through particularly the issue of culture. What does our culture think about this? Why does it think the way that it does? Um, how can we understand where this has come from? Um, for, for many of us, I'm sure, it will just feel that in our lifetimes, our culture has changed so dramatically on this point. Um, and so to understand something of where that's come from, that's what we're going to try and do today. It does mean that unusually, um, very unusually, we're not going to be looking at the Bible. Um, we're going to spend quite a long time thinking about where this has come from in our culture um, and then start to identify some issues for next week when we're going to go into the scriptures and think, how does the Bible teach us about um, what it means to be male, what it means to be female, and how can we bring the truth and the beauty of the gospel to bear on this issue? Okay, So um, today the focus is going to be on thinking, where has this come from? because it's really going to help us to take our time over that and to, um, to understand um, something of that. Um, to do that, I've got a handout for you. Um, and uh, so, um, George, I wonder, can you look after that side of the room? Um, if you don't mind helping out there, Isaac, thank you very much. And as ever, I'm hoping this might be something that's um, helpful to take away and to, um, to hold on to um, some of the, the big ideas that we've talked about um, and um, to, to go on reflecting on these things together. So um, I'll just hold on while everyone's got sight of that. Great. And if I could have one, that would be super. Thank you so much. Okay, right. Uh, let's, um, let's begin by just recognizing how um, pervasive this issue is in all sorts of ways. So um, lots of um, celebrity stories and profiles about um, people who are um, identifying um, in new categories and new ways um, and being very celebrated. Um, so um, Bruce Jenner, the, the athlete, being one of the kind of major early examples of somebody who um, announces to themselves, announces to the world that they have changed gender, that they're identifying um, now as female, as Caitlyn Jenner, um, but but many more since, and and some before um, before him. Uh, in the world of sports, it's become enormously controversial. Where you've got um, uh, just a few years ago, there was a significant proportion of the Iranian women's football team was born male, um, and were were identifying as female. Um, lots of um, uh, examples of those podium photographs at the end of a cycling race or something where somebody with a very male physique is celebrating a win in a, in a women's cycle race. Um, in sports, it's become controversial and uh, complicated. Um, in education, as um, the government has tried to work out um, how to teach into this area, as lots of charities have got involved in offering teaching to schools, um, then uh, what gets taught uh, there um, is something that Lots of us will be alert to, lots of us will be feeling um, pressure from in different ways. Uh, in at the issue of health, um, there is um, obviously now um, a lot of scrutiny of some of the clinics that have been offering the opportunity to transition from one gender into another um, and lots to come out about um, how um, safe or effective or wise it is to make any of those sorts of interventions. Again, some of you will be in, in those sorts of worlds. Uh, in law, a lot has changed here, but now um, since 2010 and the Equality Act, um, there are protected characteristics, um, including gender, as well as sex and sexuality and religion, and quite how all of those things live well together and relate to one another is another very complicated question. Uh, I've named a whole load of areas where many of you are more expert than me in some of those particulars. Um, so let's help one another and share, share our experience of, of some of these things. Um, but then much more, much more widely just in our culture, there are, aren't there, lots of questions about what it means to be a man, how men rightly relate to women, um, how women relate to men, um, how um, we um, address a lot of uh, those sorts of questions. 
And then for many of us, this is just a question that comes very close to home in different ways. So as we try and navigate um, how to care well with family members or neighbours or friends or colleagues um, as they think differently about these things and um, make different choices in their life, what does it look like to love them well as a, as a neighbour? Um, what does it look like to, um, to honour the Lord in the decisions that we make there? Um, that's why we're going to take three weeks over this. It, there's a lot to say, um, and we won't say everything in, in three weeks. Uh, it's worth then saying, as Christians have sought to get involved with, um, with this issue and, and to try and relate to it, there are, there are certainly two extremes, aren't there? One would be um, to, to reject it all as just nonsense and madness and make no effort to try and understand it. Um, and the other one would be to just embrace um, everything that our culture now says and want to just affirm um, everything. And we've seen, we've seen the church in different ways make both of those um, moves. Um, lots of the mainstream denominations being much more affirming and inclusive um, and starting to think, how do we introduce um, liturgy and celebrations of um, people changing gender and that kind of thing? So there's, there's a lot to think through and there's a lot um, out there. As I say, one of the things I'm really keen that we do in this session is to try and understand where this has come from and, and particularly how it is so persuasive, where does it get its power from? Uh, one example of that um, is a cover from Time magazine. This um, was from back in 2014. Um, this is Laverne Cox, who is a, an African-American transgender actress. So born male, um, but um, living um, as a woman and, um, and so calling herself an, an actress. Um, the, the, the title that you can probably read is The Transgender Tipping Point. Um, the subtitle, though, is even smaller, so I've put it next to it as well. America's Next Civil Rights Frontier. That's how it was described in 2014. That's a very powerful way of describing it, isn't it? To, to say that this issue of gender lines up with lots of the other things that we would associate with civil rights. Um, above all, the, the abolition of slavery and, and the end of segregation in America. Um, but likewise, the, um, the, uh, the giving of the vote to women and, and the civil rights issues there, um, the decriminalization of homosexuality, um, and um, a set of gay rights with that, and now moving towards transgender rights. Um, that's, that's one of the ways that it feels um, powerful to a lot of people to say, this is simply the next wave of fighting for people's freedom and rights. Um, and so that, that comes with enormous force. Um, to, to be against anything here implies that somehow you have a problem with the civil rights movement and any of those um, freedoms and causes. It's one of the things that causes this to be very disorienting for us because what you actually hear is people talking a lot about the importance of love, the importance of justice, and the importance of freedom. And you think to yourself, well, those are all very deeply Christian ideas, um, love and justice and freedom. Um, and yet in this telling of it, we are absolutely the bad guys. We are absolutely the people who are on the wrong side of it and that we are um, somehow unloving and oppressive and unjust. Um, and that makes it um, pretty confusing to try and navigate. So let's get into um, where all of this has come from. And um, to do that, I want to work through three big ideas. And um, we're going to talk about power, then we're going to talk about sexuality, and then we're going to talk about gender. Uh, and then, as I say, we're going to um, gather up um, some, some observations on all of that um, and start to think, what does that mean for a, for a Christian response? My plan is to make sure there is lots of time for questions come the end, because this is the topic where we've got lots of questions, and, I'm, and so I'm aiming, I'm aiming for that. Um, in lots of ways, I think this first point is the really important one, um, that um, power is a really key theme in, um, in what is being spoken of. Uh, so... Um, strap in, um, we've got some hard work to do and I'm going to show you some pictures um, and for a little while you're going to be thinking where are we going and what is all of this about? Um, bear with me, um, I, I think it is going to be helpful. Let's, uh, let's look at some pictures. Uh, on the, the left hand side there is a picture um, of an event in France. This is March 
1757. And the man in the middle of that picture, um, who you wouldn't want to be, um, is a man called Damiot. Uh, this man has attempted to kill the French king, Louis XV. Uh, and so um, here he is um, being courted uh, and the sword um, is about to strike. There's um, Paris uh, in 1757. The, the picture on the right um, is by probably one of your favorite artists, though you've probably not seen it before. This is Vincent van Gogh. Um, but not sunflowers, not starry nights. Um, this is the prison yard, um, and you've got uh, a set of prisoners um, marching around. Um, there are a few guards um, watching over them, uh, and those windows above them. Uh, what is the difference between those two pictures? It's the question for us. What's the difference between those two pictures? We might be tempted to say that the one on the left looks basically medieval. It looks like it is just a very dark and distant sort of past. That world that um, they're living in there is one that's very far away from ours. Um, on the right-hand side, something that looks it's just 100 years later, but it looks much more humane, it looks much more modern. You're in a prison yard, prisoners are in uniform, um, and um, they are exercising. That looks much more humane, much more modern. Two pictures. Uh, one, of the, one of the most influential thinkers in the 20th century looked at these pictures and saw a very different story. Um, not a story of progress, um, but a story of power. Uh, his name is um, Michael Foucault. Um, some of you will have come across him. In academic circles, he's the most quoted person in the 20th century um, in academic journals across a whole range of subjects. Um, not many of us will have heard of him, but it is um, really helpful, I think, to, to know something about him. He looks at this picture and he says that they are pictures of power. Um, the one on the left is really obvious, isn't it? Um, because um, power is being exercised there. This man attempted to kill the king of France, and so the king is now demonstrating his very real power by putting Damien to death. Um, it is a picture of power. But when Michael Foucault looks at the second picture, he sees this as another picture of power, just power being used in a very different way. Um, what's going on um, there? Um, you've got um, a much less public scene. So this is within the prison walls, out of sight of the public, um, but you've got prisoners being punished. Um, you've got prisoners being punished, not with that immediate sentence of death, but with something much more lifelong. Um, something that actually takes control of their life. And that's, that's the thing that Foucault draws attention to more than anything else. Um, he says that in the first picture, in that older time, discipline was very public um, and it was um, really a matter of death, the punishment that was being given there. In that more modern time, he sees it as the gaining control over somebody's life. That's what it's about. Um, one of his first books was all about prisons. And he describes how it is taking control of somebody's entire life. So uh, there's a uh, quote. Mm, no, there's not a quote. Um, I think it's on your handout, though. Is it on your handout? Um, it is. Um, the exercise of power over living beings no longer carries the threat of death, but instead takes charge of people's lives. Um, so the modern prison system, he would say, takes complete control of people's lives. So prison in the 19th century, um, probably not all that different from today. There is a wake-up call at 6 o'clock in the morning. At 6.05, you are dressed and your bed is made. At 6.10, there is chapel. Then there is breakfast. And then there is nine hours work with five-minute breaks. Then there's two hours of instruction. And then you do the whole thing all over again the next day. Um, as Foucault looks at the modern world, what we think of as something that's very enlightened and much more liberating and, um, and, uh, and healthy, he says is actually just a different kind of power. You're not trying to kill anybody now, but you are getting complete control over their life. And he highlights three aspects that are there on the, on the handout. Um, surveillance, the thought that you are always watched. Um, normalization, the idea that there are tight expectations of what the model prisoner should be like. And examination, 
performance is scored and rated according to what's normal. Now, uh, does that sound like the sort of thing you'd expect to find in prison? Absolutely. Um, there are guards who watch people, and there is a clear kind of behavior that's expected of a prisoner, and there is um, the kind of frequent um, process where you come up um, for perhaps early release or some sort of assessment, and there is some kind of examination. Um, so uh, Foucault looks at prisons, and he says there is something here at work. It is not um, an old form of power that's more violent, but it is really very controlling, controlling over somebody's complete life. Now we come to that quote on the handout, and we start to understand why, all this, why we're talking about this. Foucault would say that one of the truly insidious things, one of the, the, the most awful things and sinister things about the way power is wielded and people are controlled in modern times with these new methods is that simultaneously you're both a subject that is being controlled while also being an active participant in the system. Um, again, that's, that's the kind of mind of the prisoner that you are um, constantly monitoring your own behavior. You don't know whether you're being watched or not, but you behave yourself. Um, you conform because you've had all of this set up um, and a whole system is designed to make you do that. Um, now, uh, uh, now the quote on your handout, uh, where um, we start to realize we're not just talking about the prison system. Um, so here's how somebody summarizes um, what Foucault would say. Um, we are, in fact, all of us given standards by TV shows, movies, books, all media. Standards we internalize that tell us how our bodies should look, what beauty is, what you should care about, what you can say and can't say. There is no prison or method of torture that's ever been devised that can do to people what they willingly do to themselves in our modern social prison. So Foucault sees the world through that lens of power. Um, he doesn't think that um, there was once this kind of violent, dark world, and now it's all very enlightened and free. Instead, he says, no, power has gone behind the scenes. Power is much more hidden, but it's everywhere, and it is teaching all of us to do those sorts of things, to think, I'm being watched, to think there's a whole set of expectations of what I should be, and there is a constant sense of examination by other people, by myself. Power. Um, at the heart of everything. That's one of Foucault's um, really big ideas. Um, let me just pause there and see um, any quick questions. Uh, if that's just not making any sense at all, put a hand up and say so, or something I can do just to help, help us move forward. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so, um, exactly, uh, thank you. Anything else that's helpful at this stage? Yeah, Lois. Yes, so um, the question is, would, wouldn't we say that this is um, happening uh, before the media age? Um, yes, absolutely. So, um, and he would, um, I think he would accept that. As you can see, he, th he thinks it's happening there in the 19th century in the way that, that prisons operate. But increasingly, he sees the introduction of lots of other institutions. So the ways that hospitals, the way that schools work, um, he would say that all of those have that same sort of soft power. So it's no one's going to execute you, but you are being controlled. You are being taught to conform to a set of expectations that other people have. And it's, and it's gone a bit more behind the curtain. So it's less obvious. Um, it's less easy to identify, um, but in the background, there are these forces that are trying to force you to conform to a certain model. Um, yeah. Okay, let's, um, let's move on a little bit further, and uh, we might have another picture. We do. Have a look at this picture. Talk to the person next to you. What's, what is that a picture of, and what does it make you think of? Okay, what, what are we looking at? There's some very confused faces and there's some people going, oh, yeah, I know what that is. Well, um, what are these? Bathing. bathing machines, that's right. These are Victorian bathing machines. Um, what, do they, what do they kind of bring to your mind about the Victorian era? Modesty. 
Um, a real kind of focus on modesty, on prudery, on not wanting to show any flesh. And so the idea was that you could um, fully clothe, get into one of these bathing machines, um, and then you could close the door, you could get changed in the privacy of your own bathing machine, and then your servants could wheel it out into the sea, and you could delicately and out of the sight of the people on the beach dip into the water and then back in. Uh, the Victorians... Um, Uptight, repressed, um, prudish. Foucault says, no, um, that in fact is not um, what you find in the 19th century as you think about um, the Victorians. Um, and he's very helpful on this, I think. Um, that um, the Victorians, we have in our mind the idea that they didn't want to talk about sex at all. Actually, this is a period where they start talking about sex an awful lot, um, studying it, and starting to try and classify things. Um, it's an age where a Christian view of sexual morality is fading. The influence of the church is fading and the authority of the church is fading. And so instead of thinking in biblical terms and moral terms, we start thinking in some slightly more scientific categories about sexuality. Um, one example of that would be um, something that you see with some new words coming into um, the the English language. Now, don't worry if you can't see that um, particularly well. Um, you've got two lines on a graph, and this is um, one of the toys you can find inside the Google world. Um, this is called a Google Ngram, and it lets you search for words inside books. In other words, it can, you can find out when new, book, when new words come into the language. And um, these two words are heterosexuality and homosexuality. And you can see that they both start creeping into the English language um, just at the end of the 19th century um, and turning into um, around 1900. That's when those words come into the English language. Before then, people didn't talk about homosexuality and heterosexuality. But it came in that Victorian period where people were trying to classify people into categories um, to be able to, to determine what somebody is. Are they heterosexual? Are they homosexual? Um, those new categories were invented and they were used to make people conform in all sorts of ways. Um, you get this rush of kind of scientific studies and scientific experiments on people, um, trying to establish what is normal and then trying to make people conform to that. Um, so very tragically in that period, um, where you have most people being identified as heterosexual, you then have homosexual people being classified as in need of some sort of medical intervention, of fixing, um, of being made right. Um, and so um, a lot of um, medical intervention was involved um, and um, things like chemical castration used on people um, because um, this is um, part of that, um, that Victorian period where um, categories, more scientific terms are being introduced um, and coupled with that is the sense that with science we can do more and we can fix more. You can see why someone like Michael Foucault becomes really quite suspicious about new institutions and new terms for the way that they can be used to control people, categories that can be invented and then the ways that people can be controlled and manipulated by them. Because you have, I think, um, institutions like that, because you have experiments on people like that, because you have this approach where we are inventing labels and then acting on people, um, you can understand why um, we do get suspicious today about the thought that every category is something invented, something designed to limit our freedom and control us. Um, the idea that somebody out there has defined what normal is and I am being compelled to try and live up to it. Um, this idea that um, the modern world is all about power, that there are categories um, that I am I'm supposed to fulfill, that I am something of a prisoner who is constantly observed, um, who is expected to fulfill certain expectations and punished if I don't, um, that becomes a big story for, um, for Foucault of how the world goes. Um, he looks at prisons and sees institutions getting that sort of control over people's lives. 
Um, he looks at the history of how sexuality has been studied and how people have been treated um, and sees something really quite damaging there. Um, and then um, he comes on to, to think about gender. Um, let's come to that thirdly. Um, one of the most powerful stories today um, is this idea that gender fits this kind of script, this idea that um, there are categories that other people have invented that are um, telling us what we have to be, putting labels on us, trying to control us. Um, so uh, that has been, for example, one big part of the, the feminist protest for some time. Um, so this is something that, particular as people look at women's lives in the modern world, they see this very idea, that they are trapped within a whole set of expectations that people have, and um, they um, just need to, to liberate themselves from those as best as they can. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we'll come to, come to that one in a moment. Um, on the handout, I think you've got um, Simone de Beauvoir and her um, famous quote, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Uh, so what she means there is that um, you might be born female, but this idea of womanhood is actually something that you become. And for her, that's not, a, that's not an exciting thought. What she means is that there are a whole set of expectations of what a woman ought to be, and in your life, you are schooled to be that. You're punished if you don't conform to that, and you, um, you do a bit better in life if you don't rock the boat and you conform to the, to the stereotype that people have for you. Um, so one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. For Simone de Beauvoir is a way of saying, um, that is the plight of women in our culture, that they are forced to fit a certain expectation on them. Um, it's something that um, a lady called Judith Butler, who's another very, very significant figure, particularly in the idea of gender, um, has, has taken on. Um, so um, she speaks in this way that identity categories tend to be instruments of regulatory regimes. Um, she won an award for the hardest writing to understand. Um, you, know, like, you know, like the kind of movies um, have the, what's the, what's the worst thing? It's the, the Razzies, the Razzies, worst movies. <coughs> and you can win one of those. Brilliantly, Academia has a prize as well for the worst writing. And Judith Butler has won that because she's incredibly complicated. But what she's trying to say here is um, identity categories, these boxes that we want to put people in, they tend to be tools of regimes, um, governments, but also cultures that want to control people, that want to regulate them. If I, can if I can decide who people ought to be, how many boxes they are, then I can sort people into boxes. Um, she sees that as something very um, controlling. Uh, and um, in other places, she'll talk about um, this process of learning that as a woman isn't something very self-creating and fun, but rather it has to do with what she says is repetition the repetition of oppressive and painful gender norms. Um, so trying to, to work out what to do with that um, is um, her big topic. But the idea that gender norms, expectations of what it is to be a woman, are very tight, they're oppressive, they're painful, and that's a big feature of, of modern life. So part of the, the kind of feminist and, and then the, the gender debate um, has spoken very strongly about this idea of power. Expectations that we are compelled to conform to and we're punished if we don't. The world feels like a prison. Uh, true for men, we should say, as well as women. Uh, obviously, the, the experience of women, there is, there is far more to say about um, some of the, the ways that society has been oppressive towards them. Um, but here's Grayson Perry uh, and his fascinating book called The Descent of Man. Uh, he, um, you might know him as an artist. Um, he has a, a sort of female alter ego. He cross-dresses um, and so very often is dressed in a, a sort of bright polka dot dress or something. Um, but he's, um, he's male and has written um, a book. Here's, here's one quote from that. He says, men are constantly performing for an invisible authority, the department of masculinity, 
Um, he says that the department of masculinity, it lives in your head. Uh, we never know when we're being observed, so we constantly keep watch on ourselves and each other. We guard the boundaries of the role. We are all the authority figure and the prisoner. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? That's, that's exactly what Foucault is talking about, the way that um, the modern world um, sets up this expectation. Um, you are a prisoner of that, and yet you're also constantly monitoring yourself. Um, and so um, he suggests that men wander around with this department of masculinity in their heads and a constant commentary of whether you are man enough. Uh, he goes on to say, I often look at men and they seem to be victims of this drive to perform their gender. What are they afraid of? Why do they play the man so extremely, whether with muscles or knowledge or wit? He's got a, an interesting observation at one point. He, he kind of asks about those guys who in the gym um, work so hard to get so ripped. Why do they do that? Um, our natural assumption might be to impress women, but actually he says almost always it's to impress the other men. Um, it's to report to that department of masculinity and feel like I'm enough. So um, we experience this. Um, women in, in all sorts of ways that's been um, really um, uh, helpfully explored in lots of ways by, by some of the feminist literature. Um, men too. Um, lastly, let's see how um, children are also schooled to think this way about, about their life. Um, the way that um, they too are taught to think of categories imposed on them and how restrictive they are. Um, we've got a, a short video to watch. I'm hoping if I click through we'll get um, some... Thank you. This is, um, I'll, I'll witter on until we're, okay, we're ready. I'm going to witter on anyway for a moment, just to introduce um, what this is. This is a, um, a resource designed for use in primary schools by um, an educational charity that particularly was trying to push um, more of a um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender um, sort of view. Uh, I'm going to click on and see. Maybe it's one more click. It's one more click. It does have audio, but it should be, we should be able to hear it by now. Absolutely, thank you. When a baby is born, the first question many people ask is, is it a girl or a boy? When a baby is born, well, the first question actually, people ask, is it a boy or a girl? It's a baby. Actually, it's a baby. A box is ticked and a label is attached. It might seem from then on that everything is mapped out. Society tells us that boys are supposed to be and girls are supposed to. But it is not always this simple. Lots of people can feel trapped by these ideas and challenge the stereotypes by breaking out of the boxes they were put into. So, is sex the same as gender? Sex is about biology. A person is given a label of male or female based on their body parts, hormones and biology. Gender identity describes how you think of yourself. It's how we feel inside and how you want to be known by others. Only you can define your gender identity. Okay, thank you. Um, very, very effective little video, isn't it? A um, couple of things to notice there. One is um, that very standard idea that you want to separate out sex from gender. Um, sex is a biological reality um, based on your um, physical body, um, whereas your gender or your gender identity is something really separate from that. Um, so that's one very normal distinction in all of this. Then notice that actually even sex wasn't described as something simply true of you. What happened? Somebody put a label on you. Um, so you were either given the label boy or the label girl. Um, so they're suggesting that even that is something that is a sign, something that somebody else says about you, rather than being just by nature of your birth, um, something that's true of you. But then notice how power is really the great theme of that video. Um, what are people trying to do People are trying to put you in a box. People are trying to tell you what you have to be. 
Um, and um, the best thing to do is to break out of that box to define for yourself who you are. Um, that becomes one of the, the kind of biggest answers to, to this whole idea of Foucault's, that if, if the world is essentially a kind of prison where you are constantly being told this is what you ought to be, and you're constantly being observed, and you're constantly being examined, and you've even been recruited into this process where now you're judging yourself, you're keeping watch over yourself. Um, if that's how you see the world, then um, this starts to, to play into all of that. Your only way out is to define for yourself who you are, because any other labels that people are putting on you is an effort to oppress you, to control you. Um, that's the thought. Okay, uh, let me um, give you some summary points of, of what we've seen, and um, then um, we'll have some time for, for questions. Uh, what have we said, and how might it shape the way that we respond most effectively to all of this? Number one, there is a very powerful account here of how culture influences us and how power is exercised. And so there's a lot here that I take it we would recognize as, yes, um, really quite destructive and really quite powerful in our lives that um, the media um, and before it lots of other um, influences on us um, have um, created categories or narrowly defined who we should be, what we should be, um, and, um, and that is a very destructive thing um, in lots of ways. Uh, second, there is a very strong suspicion of people and how power is exercised built into all of this. Um, there is then a kind of doctrine of sin here. Um, so these are not people who think that human beings are lovely to each other. Um, there's actually a, a very, um, in some ways, a very realistic account of who people are. Um, one of the, the ideas that Foucault hated was the idea that we are gradually getting better and better. That great enlightenment idea that um, Humanity are evolving ever more upwards and onwards. And um, Foucault would say, no, actually, um, people have just become more and more effective at manipulating other people um, and controlling them. So um, there are um, some ways here in which um, Foucault and others, I think, are putting their finger on something quite important. That said, number three, this rarely includes self-suspicion. The problem generally is other people. There is a faulty doctrine of sin here. Um, so uh, it depends a little bit who you speak to. I think um, Foucault in some ways would put his hands up and say, I am as bad as other people on, on all of this. But certainly in the kind of popular world, the idea that you can divide people into goodies and baddies. We, of course, are the goodies, but there are these oppressive people out here who want to control people. Um, and so um, a big, big feature of the debate today is dividing people into oppressors and victims um, and, um, and seeing the world in a very simplistic way like that. Um, it's something that we ourselves have got to guard against, um, that we would divide the world that way. Uh, number four, this emphasis on the expectations and manipulations of other people pushes aside any sense that we have a built-in identity there is no doctrine of creation here. This is a very, very important point. Um, so for people like Foucault and Butler, they would say that all you're going to do is peel away layers of this onion, and all you're going to find are, create, are ideas and categories that people have invented to control you. There's actually nothing there. There is no male or female. Those are just invented categories that people have designed to control you. Um, and um, they would say that goes all the way down. Um, in some ways, I think that's, that's what's most new about this movement. For a long time, the story in the West has been religion is impressive and we need to get back to some earlier, better state. But usually the idea was there that um, naturally um, there are some rights and some realities that we can get back to, a slightly more natural state a sort of um, an early paradise that we can get back to. Whereas here we're just being taught everything is, um, uh, is invention. Um, there's nothing actually real. Again, it's, it's changed over time, but, but certainly from Judith Butler, um, even male and female um, are um, largely um, thought to be um, simply invented things. So there's no doctrine of, of creation here. 
Number five, indeed, any argument that says this is just the way the world is sounds suspiciously like someone telling me I just have to accept their version of reality, their version of normal. Um, in other words, um, if, if we go out and say, you need to realize this is just how the world is, there is male and female, a response is going to be simply, you're just trying to control me. Um, if I try and appeal to just a natural order, they will say, well, that's been the problem all along. People have said, it's natural, it's just how things are, when actually those are oppressive categories, they're just trying to pin on me. Again, we saw it in that video. Boy and girl were labels that are just being stuck on people. Um, so one of the tasks is gonna be to be really creative in thinking, how do we help people see that if there really is a world there, if there is a natural order to how God has created things, how is that not oppressive, but how is that good? That's gonna be a big part of what we talk about next week. Number six, not many people are actually very consistent. Across this whole debate, there are appeals to a fixed identity and a self-invented one. So you will find people saying things like, I have to be true to myself, and I can be anything I want. Those are two really big ideas that are out there, right? Um, both of them very useful at different times. Um, I have to be true to myself. You can't tell me it's wrong to feel this way because it's simply how I feel. This is who I am. Um, and at other times we can say, no, there's nothing very fixed about who I am. I can be anything I want to be. Um, we all fall into, into that sort of thing. Um, I usually make this point. I haven't often done it in front of my family, but I'll, I'll do it now. Um, there are times when I'm tempted to say, look, I am just a bit messy, and it's just who I am, and it's better if you accept it rather than I try and change it, and appeal to an inherent fixed, this is who I am. You can't blame me for it. Um, other times, there are times in the year where I think, yes, self-invention is completely possible. There's going to be a brand new me, and that means that I take up something and it lasts about a week. Um, all of us fall into um, shifting those, those sorts of positions. And in, um, and in our culture, you're often going to find people using those um, not always very consistently, um, but, um, but often some appeal to a, a real me, a fixed me, but also lots of talk of um, the whole process being self-invention and the real me is the me that I've got in my mind to be in the future somehow. Number seven, some of these key figures, Butler especially, are genuinely concerned for the oppressed and the marginalized. Again, this is where we've got to be quite careful not to demonize people. Um, Judith Butler <clears throat> has done a lot of work looking at how um, some people are really chewed up and spat out by modern society and just how awful that is. Um, and so um, there, is not, um, there is something very important there um, to, to pay attention to and to appreciate. Um, at the same time, number eight, there is a very dark side to all of this too. Um, so um, if you uh, are thinking about every category being an invention, then that goes in some very dark ways. Um, Judith Butler, for example, would say um, the idea of incest, why do people feel so appalled by incest? It's only because they've been trained to be. It's only because we've been taught that incest is a terrible thing. Actually, if we remove that social stigma, then it would be thought quite differently. Um, Michael Foucault um, regularly campaigned for the legalization of sex with even very young children um, and tried to intervene on the behalf of prisoners who were in prison for, for abusing children. Um, again, because the thought that childhood is actually another invented category. Um, that was... Um, that is something that does, um, uh, does make its way into the mainstream. There was, uh, a few years ago now, there were um, real protests in Birmingham over some teaching material that was um, being presented in schools. The material itself wasn't very edgy, um, very kind of controversial, but the people behind it and the work they were doing was. Um, there was a, um, a sem um, an academic conference that they held, and one of the ideas presented there was the idea that childhood um, is another invented category, that this idea of a period before anyone is sexually active or sexually engaged, and um, that there is an innocent childhood, 
they describe that as another category that's just been invented and one that we should, um, we should set people free from. The idea that in the classroom we should encourage everybody to think about their sexual desires, however young they are. Um, that was um, part of the research behind, behind that stuff. So um, we mustn't demonize, but we also must realize there is a very dark side to all of this too. Number nine. Um, this movement is a very clear example of a media-driven manipulative exercise of power. Um, so, as, as Foucault talks about how the modern world works, you've got to think, um, what is the great force of the pride movement? It is to normalize the acceptance and celebration of um, a homosexual lifestyle or um, a transgender sort of way. Um, actually, Foucault gives us some tools for understanding um, how are they influencing people. Um, and it is through this um, mix of inventing categories, of enforcing agreement, of getting people to police um, and to self-censor what they feel they can say about things. Those are all very powerful tools at work um, in, in the pride movement. And then lastly, number 10. You might be wondering, well, what do Foucault and Butler and people like them think we should do then? Um, and the answer is that we should free ourselves from all of these categories and give free expression to desire. Um, that for them is freedom. Um, do whatever you want, whatever your desires um, are, um, just go pursue them. In other words, there is a very dangerous doctrine of salvation here. People are being taught to do that and it's utterly destructive of relationship. Okay. That's tough. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot that we've covered, um, but I hope that's helpful to try and understand why does, why does this whole movement have a particular force? And I think it, it is because it's positioned itself as this great movement of freedom from something very oppressive. And one of the things for us to take to heart is the thought that this, um, this oppressive set of categories that have been created, that's really all there is to this world. Um, that's all you're going to find. And the only way to, to be free um, is to, to define who you are for yourself um, and to um, just give free reign to, to desire. We've got some time for questions. Um, what would you like to ask? Yeah, great. Um, I don't, I'm going to try not to say this too many times, um, but I'll say it this once. Um, come back next week. So the, the big theme of next week really is how does Genesis 1 and 2 describe a world where there are boundaries in place and, that, and how do we persuade people that those are genuinely good for us? That's it's exactly the right question, and I, I think I want to give a lot of time to it um, to next week, but that's... Um, at some level, that must be the right way to put it, to think about the Christian life. That, um, to, um, but not just the Christian life, the, the human life. Um, to be made in the image of God, to be a creature, is inherently to live within a whole set of limits and constraints. And, um, and it's an utter lie to think that the best thing for you is to pretend that those aren't there or to try and cast them off. Um, so we'll come back to it. Thank you. Yeah, Mara. In your summary, your, your point three, you were talking about. Um, yes. And I wonder if Christian artists yeah. and um, that's not necessarily a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yes, you would really hope so. Um, it's hard because I, I think, the certainly the kind of social media world and the and the wider culture is generally trained to identify somebody who's done wrong and then just to utterly destroy them and cast them out. And um, there, is, there is not much mercy um, that repentance or acknowledgement of wrongdoing is met with. Ideally in the church, yes, um, we are, um, we're able to live out the gospel to the extent that says um, we can recognize sin in ourselves um, and we can find mercy and forgiveness and 
um, and reconciliation within the church. Yeah, it's vital. Thank you. And the, yeah, I think the, um, no, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't need to keep talking. Okay, why not just talk with um, somebody nearby at the bottom of the handout there? Um, you might um, like to, you might, there might just be half a question that you haven't worked out how to ask yet. Um, why not see if the person next door can help? Um, or um, other ways in which you think what we've covered today might help us think how do we respond well? What sorts of things might we try to emphasize and why? Um, why not spend a, um, a few minutes on, on that? Okay. Um, do, do come back next week if you're able. Let me close us in a prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, um, in all of this, we, we understand something more of um, the mess that the world is in, um, how um, uh, twisted our cultures and societies can become, um, how much we can ourselves play a part in that and find ourselves both um, trapped by it and contributing to it. Father, for all that is helpful for us to see and understand here, um, please help us to do that. Um, but where um, there are profoundly untrue things here, um, where we lose sight of a, of a creation that is good, um, of a salvation that teaches us more than just to indulge our own desires, but actually offers us freedom from those things, um, that we might love and serve others. And Father, we pray that please you'd help us to um, find our way um, to, um, to living those things out, um, to enjoy more freedom from some of these um, assumptions and um, some of these um, stereotypes. Um, Father, we pray that, and um, please, as we um, go on reflecting on these things, you'll help us to see what it looks like to honour the Lord Jesus in all of this. Um, grant us, we pray, each other's help. Thank you for um, this chance to just begin talking about these things together. And Father, we do pray that, please, as a church, as we have thought about just now, um, that we might be a place where um, there is a true and proper freedom to, um, to be ourselves, um, to grow in the likeness of the Lord Jesus, um, and um, to, to be able to acknowledge the ways in which um, we fall short and to enjoy um, the forgiveness um, uh, from one another and um, the, the work of your spirit in the life of the church. Um, so, Father, please um, guide us and help us in all of this. Um, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.